0: The lift descended slowly into the bowels of the earth, down 100 feet, then 200, then further. As it did, it carried Phil Schneider from the bright desert sunshine into the dark unknown. The year was 1979, and Schneider, a geologist and explosives expert, had been brought in as part of a team working for the United States government on the expansion of an underground military base near the small town of Dulce. New Mexico Schneider's job was to descend into an exploratory shaft and evaluate the layers of rock below the surface in order to determine what types of explosives would be needed for further development. He was experienced with this type of thing, but on this day, Schneider felt uneasy. When his team had drilled the shaft, a strange black air had come spewing out, which Schneider had never seen before. Now he was dressed in a protective suit, headed to the bottom of the shaft with a number of armed green bits beside him. What were they expecting, he wondered. Schneider himself was armed with a pistol he hoped he would have no reason to use. At the bottom of the lift, Schneider set off, exploring through the seemingly natural caverns hidden at those depths. Suddenly he turned a corner and came face to face with something unfathomable. There, only a few feet in front of him, were three extraordinary beings. They were humanoid, but gray and clammy, with oversized heads and large black eyes, trained straight on Schneider. Two were short, perhaps four feet tall, while the third stood over seven feet. As the creatures began moving towards him, Schneider panicked and drew his pistol, firing quickly at the two smaller creatures and killing them. Just then, the large creature motioned its hand in a circle and outshot a blue beam of light. The beam hit Schneider, knocking him flat on his back, cutting open his stomach and blowing off three of his fingers in the process. The creature moved towards Schneider as if to finish him off, when all of a sudden a team of greenbeards, stirred by the sound of gunshots, came barreling around the corner. Weapons drawn, they were greeted by a group of similar grey creatures running in from the other direction without warning. Death was all around Schneider. A vicious battle erupted as he lay in the dirt, unable to move. Just when he thought his own death was upon him, He felt the strong hands of a Green Beret dragging him out of the fight and throwing him onto the lift back to the surface, saving his life. As the slaughter continued, the last thing Schneider saw as the lift began to rise was the Green Beret who had saved him, hit by a blue beam of light. This was a story Phil Schneider told in 1995 to an enthralled audience at the annual preparedness expo in Orange County, California. When hearing it for the first time, the story might seem unbelievable. Until that moment when Schneider slowly raises his left hand to reveal three missing fingers, giving his words a visceral quality battle scars. In another interview, he even showed his stomach and chest scars. And he doesn't have any medical history of operations of this sort. Could his story really be true? Could Schneider really have, in his words, surprised a whole underground base of existing aliens and lived to tell the tale? Or maybe Schneider's story barely begins to scratch the surface? Early on the morning of July 8, 1996, cattle rancher Jesse Gonzalez was heading to check on his herd outside of Arroyo Hondo, New Mexico, some 120 miles southeast of Dulce. When he arrived, what he discovered shocked him. His prized bowl lay dead on the ground, but not just dead mutilated. It was missing its tongue and eyes, as well as its genitalia, and a patch of skin had been removed from its lower jaw. Strangely, the edges of the wounds were smooth and dark, as if they'd been burned or cut with a laser. I've seen what predators do to a cow, Gonzalez told a local newspaper. They tear it with their teeth and it's ragged. I couldn't have made a cut that clean if I had used a razor blade. Moreover, the bowl looked as if everything had been sucked out of it, like it was a deflated plush toy, yet there was no blood around the body. I'm a professional hunter of deer and elk, and I slaughter my own animals for meat. So I know what it looks like when you pull the guts out of an animal. Gonzalez explained. This was not done by anything human. But if neither predator nor human, then what? Perhaps most unsettling about Gonzalez's story is that it is not all that unusual. For decades, reports have emerged from across the country of people discovering mysteriously mutilated animals almost always with the same grotesque characteristics. The eyes, tongue, and genitals removed, the body deflated, and a lack of blood anywhere around it. In the 1970s, the problem got so bad that the FBI opened an investigation into the matter, but their findings were inconclusive. This is all terrifying enough, but unfortunately, it's not just animals. In March of 1956, Sergeant Jonathan P. Lovett and Major William Cunningham set out from the Holloman Air Force Base in southern New Mexico, tasked with searching for debris from a recent rocket test which had exploded somewhere in the White Sands Desert. Reaching the area, the two men set out on foot in opposite directions. As Major Cunningham crested on one of the sandy dunes, a blood-curdling scream suddenly pierced the air behind him. He stormed back towards the source of the scream at full speed and as he did he was greeted by a horrifying sight. There was Lovett being dragged along the desert sand by some sort of long serpentine arm which was wrapped around his legs. The arm was emanating from an ominous silver craft which hovered in the air about 20 feet away. Cunningham was desperate to help his colleague but he seemed to be frozen in place as if paralyzed. He could do little, but watch as Lovett was pulled into the craft, and it sped away. As it did, Cunningham was immediately able to move again. He ran to his jeep and radioed the Air Force base to tell them what had happened. Those at the base informed Cunningham that their radar was picking up something moving at incredible speeds, but they could not tell what it was or where it was going. Helplessly, Cunningham returned to base Levitt is whereabouts unknown. Shortly thereafter, the Air Force began a massive search of the area, sweeping a 100-mile radius to try to locate Levitt and determine what had happened. They found nothing. Then, three days later, Levitt abruptly appeared not 10 miles from where the incident had taken place. He was dead, his naked body crumpled in the desert sand mutilated. His eyes, tongue and genitalia had been removed. His body drained of blood like he had been deflated. Yet there was no blood around him, and it was later discovered he had not suffered from the vascular collapse associated with death. From leading further, despite his body having been missing in the desert for days, it showed no signs of decomposition in fact laying in the sand only a few yards from the body or the carcasses of scavengers as if they had died while trying to feed on Levitt. A report of the incident was later recorded in a 600-page government document called Project Grunch, Report 13 part of a series of 14 reports compiled by the titular Project Grunch an Air Force program tasked with investigating alleged UFO sightings in the years directly following World War II. Oddly, today reports 1 through 12 and report 14 have been declassified and are available in the public domain. But not report 13 in fact. The government denies the existence of report 13 altogether But why would Reports 1 through 12 and Report 14 exist if there were no 13? Nonetheless, what is known about Report 13 today comes not from public domain, but from two whistleblowers who purportedly had access to the report in the 1970s. The first was author and radio host William Cooper, whom many are anxious to discount due to his extensive work with Wideleap and conspiracy theories. The second, however, was Bill English, a decorated Green Beret captain who had access to the report during his time. The Air Force and later vouched for its veracity. It might be asked if this mutilation is something known to be happening to animals. Could it also be happening to human beings? And if so, why and by who or what? On July 3, 1947, a rancher named Mac Brazil rode on horseback across the rugged terrain around Roswell, New Mexico. He was trying to keep his mind on his daily task, moving a flock of sheep from one pasture to another. But it was hard to stay focused. Like many of his friends and neighbors, he had seen the strange disc-like object speeding across the sky the night before, and he could not stop thinking about it. Suddenly, his mind snapped back into focus as he noticed a terrain he'd ridden over countless times before had changed unexpectedly. All around him were large chunks of some sort of metal and other strange debris from one hilltop to the next. It looked to Brazil as if some sort of aircraft had exploded. The military was called in to investigate and initial reports stunned the Roswell community the Roswell Army Airfield RAF issued a press release stating that they had recovered a flying disc, while the Roswell Daily Herald newspaper ran a headline which read RAF captures flying saucer. But then, only days later, the RAF issued a second press release, this time denying the existence of any flying disc, and instead insisting the debris they'd found was from a crashed weather balloon. The release included photographs of an intelligence officer named Jesse Marcel who had been among the first on the scene posing with what appeared to be a destroyed weather balloon and thus the great Roswell UFO conspiracy. Was born in 2019 those who thought they knew everything there was to know or not know about Roswell were stunned when More than 30 years after his death in 1986, the personal journal of Jesse Marcel was released to the public. There were entries from that fateful time in 1947, and they did not speak of weather balloons. We found all kinds of stuff Marcel had written. There was a great deal of an unusual. Parchment-like substance, which was brown in color and extremely strong, and a great number of small pieces of metal like tinfoil, except that it wasn't tinfoil. It had little numbers and symbols that we had to call hieroglyphics because I could not understand them. They were pink and purple. They looked like they were painted on these little numbers. Could not be broken, could not be burned, wouldn't even smoke. The metallic material not only looked, but acted strange. It had memory, no matter how it was twisted or balled up. It would return to its original shape, with no wrinkles. One woman who saw rolled a tossed onto a table watched in astonishment as it unfolded itself until it was as flat and as wrinkle-free as the tabletop. When an acetylene torch was turned on samples of the material, they'd barely got warm and could be safely handled a moment or two later. One might ask why Marcel would lie in something only he was reading. Did this finally probe that the military had found a UFO and then covered it up? Maybe, but some say they found more than that. Over the years, numerous whistleblowers have come forward describing what the military did after it discovered the mysterious debris. Reconstructing the UFO's projected path before the crash, they followed the anticipated trajectory 2.5 miles to the southeast, where they found a similar, smaller craft, intact but clearly having crashed. Laying near it were the bodies of four small gray aliens. According to those like Captain Oliver Henderson, who flew the plane that first spotted the alien bodies, and Sergeant Melvin Brown, who rode in a truck with the bodies after they'd been found. The aliens were about four to five feet tall, humanoid, but with large heads and large black eyes. They were immediately collected and whisked off to a military base, and those involved were told never to speak of it again. But of course people do speak, no matter how sternly you tell them not to. And the story did not end there. According to some, the Roswell Incident served as a sort of first contact between the aliens and the U.S. government, launching a relationship between the two which would be made official seven years later in 1954. That year, according to accounts, President Dwight D. Eisenhower scheduled a meeting with alien representatives at an Air Force base in New Mexico. There, he is alleged to have signed the seminole Grieta Treaty. This treaty contained an historic agreement specifying that the aliens would give the U.S. government access to advanced futuristic technology. While in return, the U.S. government would grant the aliens permission to abduct some animals and a limited number of human beings. In order to get Eisenhower to sign on, the aliens had agreed to provide the government with lists of the humans they abducted as well as return any abductees to where they had been taken from and wipe their memory clean before they turned them loose. However, after a few years, it became clear that the aliens were abducting more animals and many more people than they were allowed, some of which ended up dead. It is interesting to think about this alleged treaty and its terrible trade-off when considering the incredible technological advancements the U.S. made in the years that immediately followed. Within five years, NASA had been founded. Spy satellites had been launched, while both lasers and carbon fibers had been invented. In this way, the benefits of the Ariadne Treaty for the U.S. government are quite obvious. In the midst of the Cold War, Acquiring advanced technology by any means necessary would help the U.S. win. But what about the aliens? Why were they so anxious to abduct animals and people? John Lear was born in 1942 the son of legendary inventor and the founder of Learjet, William P. Lear. Far from being overshadowed by his prominent father, John Lear would go on to become a renowned pilot. First flying commercial and then missions for the CIA all over the world, he flew over 100 types of planes, becoming the only pilot ever to hold every FAA airplane certificate and setting 18 speed records, including the fastest time around the world in a Learjet, which he set when he was only 24. But in 1985, Lahr would chance upon a meeting which would change his life forever. At a reunion of CIA pilots, Lair was speaking with a former colleague named Greg Wilson, a man Leard deeply respected and trusted. Wilson asked Lear if he had seen the cryptic reports of what became known as the Lakin-Hethbent Waters incident. A series of supposed visual contacts between the United States and British Air Forces and UFO is in 1956. When Lear said that he had, Wilson informed him that the reports were no conspiracy. The incident had actually happened, and he knew, because he had been there, his fundamental beliefs about the world. Taken Liar began to look into UFOs for himself. Using his extensive network of high-level contacts CERN throughout his career to uncover information that others did not have access to. In short order, Lear became not only a believer, but a leader of those looking for truth. He gained access to a hard copy of The Great Treaty, which he said was exactly as it had been described. But what he discovered went even further than that and became even more disturbing. In 1990, he revealed he had received four independent confirmations about a secret underground base hidden deep below the Earth, run jointly by the CIA and aliens, the location of the Base Dulce, New Mexico. But it wasn't merely the existence of the base that was so disturbing. It was what was going on inside it. The base layer had learned was seven stories deep, stretching more than two miles into the ground. Each floor served a specific research purpose and the further down one went, the more terrifying the experiments became. And learn his own words. These experiments included insertion of a tiny probe about three millimeters in size into the brain for monitoring and programming purposes, as well as genetic crossbreeding between the aliens and humans. Worse. Lear had learned that the aliens have a genetic disorder and that their digestive system is atrophied and not functional. In order to sustain themselves, they use an enzyme or hormonal secretion obtained from the tongues and throats of cows or humans. This might provide an explanation for the animals or humans discovered, mutilated, and deflated. At the same time Lear was putting together these shocking revelations, there was another figure speaking out about the horrible goings-on at the secret base in Dulce, New Mexico, Phil Schneider. During his speeches, he described the alien-human-animal gene-splicing experiments which were taking place and the cruel and sadistic torture those being experimented on suffered. Like Lear, Schneider explained how the aliens view humans as a food source, using secretions from the glands of humans and animals for the mixtures of vitamins in their food. However, Schneider went further than Lear in one respect. He claimed he knew the reason the aliens were conducting these experiments not out of some sort of twisted love of science, but rather as part of an alien agenda which sought the complete takeover of this planet. The purpose of crossbreeding and gene splicing was to create a hybrid alien human race that had the physical endurance of humans along with the advanced mental and psychic capabilities and social cohesion of the aliens. In other words, the aliens were intending not only to experiment upon humans, even kill them for nourishment, but replace them entirely. The worst part according to Schneider, was that the Dulles base was far from the only such base conducting these type of experiments and pursuing this agenda. In fact, in 1995 he estimated that 131 similar facilities existed across the U.S. with nearly 1,500 more around the world, all connected by magnetolividend trains, which could reach speeds of up to Mach 2. It was, he asserted, a vast high-speed subterranean network, which in his estimation had been used by aliens to abduct between 6 to 7 million humans since the Greater Treaty was signed in 1954. This is why Schneider began giving speeches in 1995 to try to raise the alarm before it was too late, and by 1996 he was starting to gain some traction. He had nearly completed his first book, and each speech he gave was better tended than the last. Interestingly, he used to start all of these speeches by saying the same thing. If they ever say I committed suicide, you will know I was murdered. Perhaps he had a reason to say this. A few years prior, Schneider had started publishing a magazine called The Alien Digest with his friend and colleague Ron Rimmel, who went under the codename Creston. Shortly after they began publishing, Rommel was found dead in a park in Portland, Oregon of a bullet wound to the head. The police ruled it a suicide, but friends and family, including Phil Schneider, were sure Rommel had been murdered. Schneider didn't want to end up like his friend. He wanted people to know that he wasn't going to kill himself, and if it was, said that he had. It was a lie. On January 17, 1996, Phil Schneider was found dead in his home by authorities, tipped off by friends and family who had not heard from Schneider for nearly a week. At first, the cause of death was said to be a heart attack. Until the coroner revealed that they had found abrasions on Schneider's neck, it was clear that he had been strangled. The official story quickly changed. It was not a heart attack but a suicide. According to police, Schneider had wrapped a rubber catheter around his neck and choked himself to death. There was at least one person who did not buy the story Schneider's ex-wife Cynthia, who knew him better than anyone. As she described Philip, had missing fingers on his left hand and limited motion in his shoulders. I believed that it was physically impossible for Philip to have held the rubber hose in his left hand with missing fingers and then wrapped the hose three times with shoulders that had limited motion. On top of that, Schneider owned a firearm. If he was going to kill himself, why not quickly and easily? But there was more, when, after his death, Cynthia went to his apartment. She found that all of his research was missing. All of his photographs, his materials, his notes, the various salient metals he'd claimed he'd retrieved from the Dulce base. It seemed almost certain that foul play had been involved, but the police refused to investigate. If they ever say I committed suicide, you will know I was murdered, he has said. The question is then, if it was not a suicide, who killed Phil Schneider, and why? Perhaps it was because he was spreading a great secret of a hidden world, and a terrible agenda of a future teetering on the brink. Thank you for watching. If you enjoyed the video, please hit the like button, and if you're new, hit subscribe and the bell next to it for future notifications.